Welcome to the Opera Box Score podcast for Monday, May 2nd. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for joining us. We are America's talk radio show about opera, period. No one talks with you about opera week in, week out like we do. And what's more, on our show, you get to have your say. Leave us a message on 224-218-9BOX. Again, 224-218-9269. Or email us at operaboxscore at gmail.com. On tonight's show, we go inside the huddle with one of the most distinguished tenors of our generation. Matthew Polanzani gives us 20 minutes of his time, and what a guest he was. Don't miss what he has to say. But first, our Chalk Talk segment, in which the Opera Box Score team respond to an article written by contemporary American composer Mark Adamo. In his piece, Adamo makes the argument that new works and small performance venues are the driving force behind opera in America now. Well, some might beg to differ, sir. Read the full article on our website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com, and listen to our hot takes on the topic coming up next. Plus, I've got all your opera headlines, and then later, a Contessa cage match. Which singer will deliver the knockout punch in one of the toughest arias from Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro, and perhaps from the entire soprano repertoire? Find out as Giovanna is our judge, and Oliver and Tobias knock him down in this week's TKO segment. Let's roll. Kickoff is next on Opera Box Score, right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. Now, I hear you say an opera ain't your thing, but get this. We tackle everything about opera and body slam it into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of in-depth analysis, outrageous opinions, and good, clean fun. You might even learn something. Opera class, sports radio crass. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. All right, well, welcome into Opera Box Score. It is a great show tonight. Matthew Polanzani hanging out with Oliver Macho Camacho. What's going on, Oliver? It was a beautiful weekend of Polanzani. Um, I went to his uh, Schoenermillen recital with Alan Darling, and I asked him afterwards if he would be gracious enough to let me interview him, and he said yes. And so uh, he gave a master class on Sunday, and I waited in his dressing room, and I had my prettiest blouse on. He's, he said yes, so all your jokes about my so-and-so husband have finally come true. All right, let's get it on. So uh, if you haven't already, pull up that article on our website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com. It's a piece by contemporary American composer Mark Adamo, and he was doing a master class down in Indiana and an undergrad soprano. Asked him this question about... Is opera thriving? Is it collapsing? Is it mutating? And he said yes to all of those things, which, as he admits in the article, isn't a great response. And so he fleshes it out a little bit. And the basic premise of his response is that opera houses are no longer built to produce works that people are interested in. We need to rethink the composer and we need to rethink the venue. Giovanna Jacques, what's your take? I am especially in agreement about the venue portion. I can relate it to my own experience in that in the fall, I did a production of The Turn of the Screw, the Chicago Fringe Opera. And in this production, we didn't have a stage. We set the entire opera throughout the rooms of a mansion. Uh, I was fortunate enough to sing Mrs. Gross, and I was also the tour guide. So I got to spend the entire opera with the audience. The audience members were never more than a couple feet away from the performers. And that was incredibly intimate. And it was so beautiful to see the audience so uncomfortable at first and then just grow into this this level of, of camaraderie between themselves as they kind of went through this story with us. 
And as a performer, it was the most stimulating time I've had since becoming a singer. Tobias, tie it into this idea of academic expectations. Here's this undergrad soprano asking a big name composer for some advice. What gives? Well, so I think the academic expectations actually, um, uh, you know, what we do in the United States is we train opera singers starting at 18 years old and we teach them diction and to raise their soft palate and things like this. Um, with the idea being, or we, I think we feed the dream that the only way that opera exists in the real world outside of academia is at places like the Lyric and at the Met and at La Scala and uh, Covent Garden and, and places like that. When in reality, it is these small companies. You know, you, in Chicago, we're so lucky to have so many different small companies that are putting on fantastic products. Um, and I think that's fantastic. And that's how we know that opera is living. It's absolutely the, mutual. And, and, and I think that's a really cool thing. Um, and certainly, you know, in my experience in academia, I never dreamt that my first or some of my first work after completing a master's degree would be with one of those small companies. You know, I thought it's going to be an apprenticeship with a great, uh, a great place and then, you know, start getting some small roles at smaller houses and then eventually reach the pinnacle, whatever the pinnacle may be. Some people think it's the Met or whatever. I, I don't know from, you know, my dreams specifically what it is. Um, so we don't prepare our singers for what opera currently is. And I think that's why this question got asked. Yeah. And I think that's why my opinion of it has changed because I think 20-year-old Toby would have said something completely different than than now where I would have said opera you is dying. 22-year-old Toby? <laughs> <laughs> I don't like to reveal how young or old I might be. but Well, ahead, here's my problem oh. with this article. And it's written by a composer, obviously. So he has to say that new work is the way forward. But I just don't agree with that. It's obviously the director that is going to be driving the future of opera. It's up to the director to reimagine old stories and find a way to tell them in new ways. I We need new operas in the sense that we need to uh, tinker with the art form a little bit, but I, I just don't agree with this idea that we have to but drive don't you think, the system. don't you think that a director could help bring to life that new music off the page? Yeah, You're can they be hand in hand? Can they work together? I'm going to fight you on this show. Possibly, but I just don't know if I just don't know if audiences want to see that. I think audiences want to see the standard rep. It's our job to give them the standard rep in new ways. You know, it's interesting you mentioned standard rep and here's Adamo who has written four operas or just is doing his fourth and one of them has already become pretty standard rep in the United States. What's that? And that's Little Women. Um it was premiered by Houston Grand Opera I think in 1998 and Joyce Donato was in it. Mm -hmm. Um you know, and conservatories it, around the U.S. are starting to perform it because it has so many ro roles for women. Mm -hmm. And what for, for Little Women? Not for the tall ones. Is there a show on Lifetime now that's called Little Women too? L I think. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, Little Women L.A. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, she wrote a hell of a book. I can't believe there are that many. I never uh, read the little book. people and conservatories with them. So see, the problem is this is like, and I know I'm going to go off on the whole. You know, Germany is the greatest thing ever, and you guys can all pelt me with pretzels. But the fact oh, of the matter is, about is midgets, that you guys know in Germany <laughs> they have these smaller houses. They see 500, 700 people. They can do standard rep. It's funded by the government, so the production teams are not attached to any sort of donors or ticket buyers. They can do these standard rep productions in fantastic new ways, still have full orchestras, and still be in an opera house. So it's frustrating that we cannot why, replicate why that Why break here. something that's not broken? But it's a different mentality in Europe in general. The approach to the arts is completely different than it is in the U.S. And I think in the U.S. we're trying to cater to what our audience is. And if the audience What's is smaller, if we're only going to – if only 70 people are going to come, well, let's get 70 people every night and give them a hell of an experience. Right. Um, 
I'm kind of though. I will say this. But then the ticket has to be like two hundred dollars or <laughs> not, or not if you're not trying to create a profit. Which brings me to my next point. As a performer who's trying to make a living as a performer, it it's difficult to see all these. I don't need to just get a a role at a small company for experience, quote unquote, anymore. Because I'm sorry, I have experience. I have a master's degree. I've done these things. You need the bills. You need to pay I, your bills. I have to pay my bills. And that's not to say I'm too good for it's this. Hard to spend those experience dollars at Whole <laughs> Foods. Exactly. Yeah, and, that's, and I don't want to sound arrogant or say that I'm above work because I'm definitely not above earning a dollar. But it's just that it has to be profitable for the performer and for a company to continue to go in that direction. Yeah. Um, otherwise, opera does die um, without funding, without patrons who are willing to invest in the art form. So if you can't make money at this, are you going to quit? It's I did. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I mean, want, it's I don't not want to. But go ahead. It's it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's extremely hard, and it takes all the pleasure out of it. I take immense pleasure in singing with my own company, mm-hmm. but I I'm I'm not auditioning mm-hmm. for other companies anymore because it's not to me personally. That doesn't mean that it's not that it is you know a bad thing or a good thing. It's just that for me, it's not worth it. I need to. I need to pay my bills at this point. I'm tired of not being stable. And I I think for me, it's interesting because I work a couple different part-time jobs. I spend way too much time riding the L in Chicago going to said part-time jobs. And something interesting happened to me. And you ask, would I quit? The other day, I had a Spotify playlist going on my phone and Madam Butterfly popped up. And I thought to myself, holy crap, I love music. And there's times when you're in this darkness, like treading through these companies who aren't paying you and you're not paying your bills and you're going to your part-time job where you kind of forget why. And then you hear that wash of an orchestra by Puccini. And this is, George, I guess this is your side here too. And you think, why would I ever not want to be a part of that? Um, so op- so it comes down to like, you know, how, how can we get this right show at the right scale, basically? I would agree with Adama when he talks about that opera is way too Manhattan-centric. All our listeners know that, man, I've been trashing New York for just years. I've lived there twice. I don't get it. Everyone's got You'll their thing. You'll never work again. Fan- hey, man, I don't need to, I Actually, love to I visit, but I don't, do. need to, I, don't need to, I don't need to go back there. And the problem is that all the press is in, like is Ted in Cruz, New York. Ted Cruz, New York values. So. Uh, there we go. Yeah, exactly. So if, if you are not doing your work in New York, it is so difficult to get it recognized and so difficult to get it promoted on a very large scale i guarantee you if loft opera was in chicago nobody no would, one care. would know about nobody it care. well because we have our own you know we have our own companies here that aren't getting articles in the tribune and aren't getting articles in the new york times or posters and things like that and it part is of that have to do has to do with the fact that the tribune classical music reviewer refuses to come to anything below chicago opera theater which I, is <laughs> very, well that's pretty low so i don't get no, we, don't, we don't have enough journalism for classical music yeah. in chicago there's that uh, chicago on the aisle website and chicago classical review which i'm more likely to yeah. what is it new city Philly? new city's great yeah. new city's great yeah. they go to a lot of stuff they go to they, everything and they i think they honestly evaluate a lot of stuff too which is when you can that's not always fun to do when you're a little so my opinion is so predictable about this i don't even need to say it but for those who are new to the show uh, i love singers so i'm not george cedarquist and i do think that it would it's going to take doing old operas maybe even um you know less performed operas like you know baroque rococo era stuff with fantastic singing and evidence of how successful that could be is this roberto Deborah we talked about 2 weeks ago 
which is an opera that's so rarely performed these days. But put together a good cast of that, put on some beautiful costumes, do a somewhat traditional staging, and it will sell the house out if you do it well. It's your turn to let us know what you're thinking. Leave us a voicemail, 224-219-9BOX. That's 224-219-9269. You can also shoot us an email, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Right now, it's time for the two-minute drill. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from the past week in two minutes tops. The American-born director Daniel Kramer has been chosen as English National Opera's next artistic director. Kramer, 39, arrived at ENO nine years ago as a protege of the opera-loving actor Simon Callow. Now, back in 2006, he directed Harrison Burtwistle's opera Punch and Judy. Now Kramer takes over a house that is in turmoil with budget cuts, a chorus on strike, and a dwindling audience. Mei Baozhou, one of the foremost performers of China's famous Peking opera style, died on Monday at age 82, according to Chinese state media. The renowned artist furthered the Mei school of opera, pioneered by his father, legendary Peking opera artiste Mei Lanfang, and he was best known for his portrayal of female characters in works like The Drunken Beauty and Farewell, My Concubine. After canceling her role debut at Covent Garden this September, Anna Trebko has told the Metropolitan Opera to forget about Norma in 2017. Quote, I have come to the unfortunate conclusion my voice has evolved in a different direction. End quote. She repeated, canceling her appearance at the Met. Now next month, she sings Elsa in Lohengrin in Dresden. Almost four years to the day after he joined the staff of Austin Opera as general director, Joseph Spector has tendered his resignation. And this summer, he'll take over as president and general director of Arizona Opera. Spector will fill, be filling the shoes of Ryan Taylor, who moves to Minnesota Opera this month after four years in Arizona. And finally, want to see the Sydney Opera House blow up? Then look no further than the trailer for the new X-Men movie. That's the two-minute drill. Kicking it over to Oliver Camacho first. What's tickling your fancy on that? Well, the whole Anna Trepko canceling Norma uh, has been a big deal in the opera community. And for those of you who are not familiar with this opera, it is one of the most difficult operas to cast. It is all about the soprano in reality. And very few people alive today can sing this role, Norma. So for her to have said, whatever, five years ago, yeah, I think I'll be able to sing it by 2017, and then to decide after they've announced the season, after they've probably sent out marketing materials. and Put her picture on it, because she's not on the truck. Exactly. And anybody else who can sing Norma, there's like two people right now who are singing that role, besides potentially Anna Trepko. Um, they're probably booked, and they probably won't be able to take, you know, you know be the understudy save the day person that comes in and and sings it in her place so they she really did screw uh covent garden over with this there's process. no question as much as i like to tease anna Tetrebko, although i think she's a pretty hot what you mama. call anna Tetrebko? i know what a Freudian <laughs> slip that was uh yeah this i've i've i feel sad for her because it would be nice to to see her on stage uh tobias Wright, what's happening with the two minute drill for you um i had a couple things of note well uh, just pick one okay fine <laughs> This is a podcast, man. No, I'm not going to get one. to work. I'm pick two. <laughs> First, Kramer uh, with English National Opera. He's a Northwestern grad. I don't know if anybody Aww. knew that. Um, and then, go cats, rah! Go cats, rah! Um, <laughs> and then the other thing, the X Men trailer with the Sydney Opera House blowing up. Just of note, if anybody listens to our show and is a fan of Legos, 
There is a Sydney Opera House Lego set, and it is one of the most magnificent things I've ever seen. Okay. Hmm. I've seen it. It really is dope. It's Thank also you. like $300. Yeah, I know. That's why I don't own it. My son, Ben, wanted to buy it and get mm. it for Christmas. And I was like, you need to pay. How did we talk about X-Men and not mention James McAvoy? Because we were talking about Legos. Oh. Get off of my airwaves here. <laughs> As for Daniel Kramer, when I read that piece uh, on the interweb, I was for a fraction of a second jealous, I will admit. And then I was like, you know what? I would not want to do that job for all the money in the world. And I'll tell you why. It's because if he can't sort it out, that company is going to evaporate and go down. So if a Northwestern graduate can't sort it out. That's exactly go right. Cats. So if <sighs> if he um you know, if he blows it, man, that is gonna be the end for that company. Well, you really think he's he's the, he has to be the savior? Why I do you say that? Well, because they're at the end of the rope. I mean, there is no more money. There is no more time. The audiences are annoyed and pissed off, and they have no more patience for this. No pressure. So I, I, I don't know who else would come in at that point. I'll be looking for a job in September. You would be yeah. underqualified. Oh. <gasps> Actually, I think yeah. you would be really good at it. Oh, How no, dare you? I went to Northwestern. Go Cats. <laughs> Javana Jacques. Actually, I was most interested by the fact that I had no idea that there was a Chinese opera style, which makes me feel very uneducated. Well, and, you are, because I mean, you no, didn't no, go to Northwestern. I, did, I did know that there was a Chinese opera style. <laughs> she went to Nepal. Okay. What are they called? The Blue Devils? No, the uh, demons. First okay, of all, the demons. Okay, what's the noise they make? Because it's a Roman like, Catholic, like yeah, a burp okay. or something like that. Or... Anyhow, I knew that there was a style. I just know nothing about it, and so I was just sitting I here. I would thinking, make fun of it. It's actually really easy to make fun of Chinese opera, but you could look it up. I I yeah. will, yeah. and I also think it's incredible that you know Some there's half a, Asian folks. Oh my so. God, let I me can. finish, can. Oliver. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't want to mention though. No. Okay, I was I'm like, done. oh, good. I'm glad that our ethnic person can make fun of it. Wait, go on. No, I don't want to. I don't Finish your thought. Come on. Don't be a girl. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. No, all I was going to say is that I just wonder if, you know, they're, they're having a podcast in China that has like the same questions as we do of Western opera and the same like, oh, is it mutating? Is it changing? Is it dying? Like what's going on? Well, they're going to own it. Well, they'll know more about James McAvoy over there for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. They have internet access to that sort of thing. I thought those sites were blocked, Oliver. Uh, Peking opera is a brilliant style. When I was in China in 2007, I I had the pleasure of uh, going to the Peking opera and it's so unique and fantastic. You'd rather work in Beijing than in New York, right? Uh, I'm just surprised that this guy specialized in in women's roles. I thought that was really really interesting. Mm, That's what they do, don't they? Well, I guess because there's no women in any of the shows. That's what I was going to ask. Do oh, they have no, no, women I'm thinking the of the movie uh, Farewell My Concubine. Ah, yeah. yeah. The show that I saw did have women in it. Okay. okay. But I think it might have been a was tourist thing. Did, yeah. did you check? Like opera How do you know they were women? I, I, they had breasts. Can do he wonders. stood outside. But they don't the expose their breasts. He stood outside the bathroom Look, to inspect. You just, you just okay. knew, all right? Okay. <laughs> I can guarantee you there's no transgender bathroom. You saw which bathroom, bathroom they went into? Yeah. Yeah, seriously. TKO on the OBS. It's time for TKO. It's our segment where we pit two opera singers against each other on the same piece of repertoire, and we have a multi-round battle to the death to decide who Mm. is going to emerge victorious. Oliver Camacho is going to set it up for us, but Giovanna is going to be the judge between Tobias anchoring one singer and Oliver advocating for another. Set it up, buddy. 
So um, I feel like we're in this cycle of TKOs where we need to do a soprano and we need to do Mozart. And I wanted to limit it to uh, sopranos who have worked with James Levine or specifically who have sung at the Met. Uh, so we narrowed it down to uh, the Contessa and Marriage of Figaro. And I wanted to make it a fair fight. So uh, the rules are they had to have sung this role at the Met. No Kiri Takanama and no Renee Fleming because Kiri and Renee are just too good in this role. They're like, those are signature roles for them. So it's not fair. So I am choosing uh, a singer who has been singing this role at, at the Met um, in the past, I don't know, it's in the aughts, you'd say, like in the, she started performing it in the 2000s. Uh, it's German Greek soprano Anya Harteros, uh, who is, uh, let's see, she's probably in her 40s right now. She's, or maybe in her, in her early 50s. Careful. She's something. <laughs> um, and I am choosing her because uh, she has this really beautiful spicy tone quality. I think it might be like the Greek in her. Like there's something like just peppery and exciting about her tone quality. And it's a voice that clearly uh, has the possibility to sing larger repertoire like Verdi, maybe the big bel canto roles. And she has sung the heavier Mozarts like Fiorelligi and uh, Vitellia and the Contessa. What about you, Tobes? I have chosen um, Carol Vanessa, who in the last two decades plus has sung um, this role more than pretty much anybody outside of Renee. Um, also has done uh, Fiorelligi, Don Anna, and uh, Don Elvira and Don Giovanni. So she's a Mozart specialist. And one of the things that I enjoy most about her is the richness of her sound. Um, and for me, that's something that I always, uh, I'm drawn to singers who just have a, a darker color, a darker timbre. Um, yeah, well, especially these singers, in Mozart. These singers are very equally matched because they both have this very distinct tone quality. You'll never mistake them from somebody else. And they have sung similar roles. They both have sung Armida and Ronaldo. They both sung Contessa, obviously. Both have sung Kyoto Legion, Vitalia. So these are very equally matched singers. So this should be a good fight. All right, so what's our first round, Oliver? So we're going to listen to what really is the only aria for the Contessa. She has her Cavatina uh, Porto di Amor, which is like a two-minute you know, thing. It's a very hard two-minute thing, but uh, it's not a full-on aria. So in the third act, we have this uh, recitativo accompagnato, followed by what feels like a da capo aria. And it's not actually da capo aria, but Mozart is here. What is a da capo aria? It's where you have like the principal theme and the exploration of the theme and then you get a contrasting section that we call it the b section and then you go back to the original theme and you do it with ornaments so like a b a yeah that sort of works cool um so mozart is for those who don't know in in marriage of figaro is not trying to write opera seria which are full of da capa arias but the contessa somehow feels like an opera seria character dropped into this comedy uh, so we'll begin with the tail end of the recitativo and the beginning of the aria uh, the kind of the point or the mission of the recitativo is to set up the affectation or the mood of the ensuing aria. And you often find in recits, accompagnato recits, this kind of litany. There's always like a list that the singer has to give about like, you know, this, 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 and this happened to me. And now aria, you know. So we'll take it from the end of the recitativo where uh, the Contessa is complaining about her husband and... Um, how, let's see, I'm going to read it, how he has been uh, a mixture of unfaithfulness, of jealousy, and of scorn. And at first, she was loved, prima amata, uh, then insulted, in the ofesa, 
et al fin tradita, and finally betrayed. And the best line of this entire recit is, Fammi or cercar da una mia serraita. And now I have to lower myself and ask my servant for her help. Let's take a listen. All right. And so, Oliver, who was singing the first clip there? So we started with a 1985 performance live from the stage of the Met uh, with Carol Van Ness and James Levine conducting. And then we heard a performance that I found on YouTube's, probably recorded in the aughts, uh, but I don't know exactly what date, uh, but that was the Anya Harteros recording. Go ahead and make your case. Well, I mean, I everybody knows that I'm like this big Baroque music person, and I feel like Anya Harteros is really taking the idea of singing rhetorically or singing with gesture and she really emphasizes dissonances and she really stretches out certain words for for the affect and she's really trying to give each you know thing that the music trying to she's really trying to emphasize what mozart's setting of the text is and i like i you know i like the idea of trying to emphasize the text but what i don't like in this uh, particular case there is because of the affected sound to emphasize text in my mind like she, there was some nasality there on some things that I thought was kind of—I won't say ugly, but it was very much not within the line of what Mozart had written. And because of that, I kind of lost the idea of nobility. 
Well, and, and whereas when my girl Carol was singing, <laughs> it was so warm the whole time, and and it was very much yes, I I have these conflicts going on, and I'm going to tell you about them before I you know say uh, before I have my aria moment. Um, and it was kind of I don't know if you guys watch House of Cards. Nobody, no. nobody. No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know I don't watch TV or okay. books or well, movies. Yeah. Or He's too busy traveling China. So. <laughs> I don't watch House of Cards. They don't stream Netflix in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> sorry, George. Um, but not. so I just you have to have that that dignity. That's my word. That I didn't feel. I didn't feel that comfort, that nobility when she was singing. Oh, I got you. I mean, I'll I'll take some of that, but I'll say that Carol Vanis's top is wild. And she can't control Maybe it, so. so, but in this, we only heard essentially one high note, and it really wasn't even a high note. And she spun it so beautifully. All right, well, let's go so, on to the next round. Giovanni, you get to make the call. Who's the winner of the first round? I'm announcing my winner at the end. What? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to wait until the <laughs> okay, end. Okay, here we go. Well, wait, okay. before we go on, in all my TKOs that I've done, I've never won, but I think I maybe just won a round. Mm-hmm. Cool. <laughs> but in the pop quizzes, I'm undefeated. <laughs> Revision right, is you had two points last time. I forgot. Yeah. Um, all right. So um, the second clip uh, is what we would sort of think of as the B section of this aria. So the singer has to give us a different look uh, and give us a different tone quality. And in the first, in the opening section, she's in the opening section of the aria. She's talking about him. She's talking about the count. She's talking about their relationship. But suddenly the text goes more introspective. She's talking about her. How is this affecting me? And you hear that sound of me a lot. And so she's now commenting on her lot. And so I want to hear. Well, let's hear. Let's let's, let's play the second clip. We'll and start. We'll start with Anya Hateros. So for me, Anya 
Harteros is coming from this school of historically informed performance. I said it already, but the way she bends pitch in these very jagged lines, she makes the large intervals seem even larger and the tiny intervals seem. And you're a fan of that. There's something about that just hurt. I mean, like it makes your back crawl a little bit. Like you get like, oh, what did she just do? You know, it's like because I felt that and I felt it negative. <laughs> I love that. I mean, like, and I was yeah. like, oh, you aren't quite singing a line. <laughs> is what I felt. All right, all right. Well, at least my but, singer had very clear diction. I mean, you really heard the beginnings of consonants. You heard the <laughs> double that where the mm-hmm. stop happens in the middle. You know. And that to me is important for text. Now, does that communicate across you know stage of that or a house that has three thousand people in it? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But um, if you're listening up close, if you're on the first or second row, you're getting all those details. And so for me, I hear that line go through uh, when Carol was singing, and it and it was such a line. And that's what we. Oh my gosh, as singers, what do we always like talk about? As singers, what do we talk about? Is legato. And as a listener, I don't know that you're always listening for that. Um, actively, but you certainly know when to appreciate it when it happens, if that makes sense. And so for me, when I hear that, even though maybe the diction, I will always, always, this is my opinion, and this is why I chose Carol um, Venice to, as, as my victor in this round, I will always want to hear a beautiful legato line over somebody stopping to say puto. And even though it can change meaning, I just know that when you hear a beautiful sound, for me, again, you, you remember it, you feel it. And I don't have to contort and say, why didn't you just sing the bitch? Well, I will say that the sounds of the words usually convey the meaning of the word. So I enjoy hearing the sounds of the words. So. This is getting super technical. I like it. And it sounds like it's extremely close. We got to move on to round three. <laughs> All right. So round three is what feels like the da capo of this aria going back to Dove Sono. But here Mozart plays a very cruel trick and he t- takes away the rest between the two phrases, thereby making the soprano have to sing two phrases in one breath. And if you time this poorly, it happens all the time. I've seen it. Um, you will run out of air at the end of the phrase. So you have to rehearse the crap out of the thing with the orchestra so to make sure that you don't run out. And on top of that, it's typically sung a dynamic level or two lower than the previous section. So piano, pianissimo. So just like boxing, it's all about timing. Let's take a listen. We'll start with Carol.
sounds like someone's getting a little sleepy on stage up there. Man, that thing was dragging <laughs> and flat, baby. You know what's interesting about it is it's not it's not that it's bad singing, but could you imagine Le Notte di Figaro is not a short opera. I could not, would not listen to uh, someone sing so self-indulgently for an entire evening. <laughs> well, I will say that like she demonstrated so much control. Oh my god! Like, the phrase yeah. was so long, and she controlled vibrato exactly the way she wanted to deploy it, and she blended it in as necessary. Carol Vanis was just going pure on pure breath, and she did I, not have as much control. And the end of the phrase, as she was going out of air, you heard the vibrato bleat a little bit. You did you know? hear the vibrato change a little bit. Um, and with Anya, I just. Like, like you know, I never. I will. I will say this as a listener to an opera singer, you never want to feel uncomfortable. Uh, and I think we're we we're smart. Audience members are smart. You can tell, like, oh crap, I don't think this guy's gonna make it, or this lady's gonna do it. Yeah, and then you kind of you're like, ah, uh, uh. no, yeah, no one wants to be watching that happen, right. right? And so it is. You know, I never did feel that that way. Um, but oh my good. <laughs> like and Giovanni, you're going to withhold judgment still, right? I, I am, though I will say that, that round was a theory. This is, start, this is starting to get ugly. <laughs> that was the one round where I was like, yep, nope. All right, Oliver, set right, it up. So here we go, the big finish. Really brilliant thing that Mozart does here. He changes the course of the aria, and you think it's going to stay in this Dove Sono moment. But then um, in the last verse of this text, he goes for something much more heroic, and he goes into an entirely new theme, a new like orchestration, a new rhythm, and uh, it is the Contessa deciding she's going to take control of the situation. She's going to change the course of this, and it's going to be through her fidelity and her devotion to the Count that she's going to change him. Uh, and so it's a really, it's the most difficult thing to do in this aria. Like you've been singing the passage the whole night, or this in this whole aria the past like five minutes, and now suddenly you have to sing a very forte, a high A, a very heroic high A. And two of them in a row with without very little with very little preparation, uh, a lot of sopranos just go splat on this moment. So we'll start with Anya. <laughs>
All right, thunderous applause to wrap up the fight. You guys have got just a few seconds to make those cases before Giovanna well, lifts an arm. I will say this. Convince me. <laughs> I, just in all fairness, Carol Vanis has always been one of my favorite singers. But this is a live performance, and it's not in the studio, so you don't get a second chance. And you heard a sneak breath. You know, you heard the high A begin to fray. There's three of them in total. The first one was great. Second was getting, uh, the third one was definitely questionable. And just like in, you know. I'm going to forgive the sneak breath, sneak breath though. And here's why. She, with that sneak breath, yeah. if you will, was able to maintain vowel integrity. And your girl, Anya, <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't understand a darn thing she was saying. Okay. So in gymnastics or in um like a what do you call this other sport? This is called opera singing. Oh, ice, ice, ice skating. Mm-hmm. Figure There's skating? Oh, figure skating. Thank you. There's always like the really hard jump, but then you have to like lift your arms and like show that you still have your technique. Triple or you to, axle. Yeah, yeah, you have to, and you have to land it. You know, and in Mozart and many operas from this era. Uh, there's always the trill that comes in the cadential moment. And the trill is just to prove to the audience that, yeah, even though that was a really hard note, I still have like my grace about my still got good tone quality. And if you don't have good tone quality, the trill does not work. And Carol Vanis' trill was just barely there, just hanging on to it, you know. But Anya still had it. Anya's trill was pretty impressive. But the thing, I'm going to go look at the, look at this aria and the whole body of work, and I have to say that Carol sang it with such beauty and comfort and i'm going to go back to the nobility because that's what it's about and she does prove that she's not the buffo character here a little bit you know by maintaining that throughout the aria and i think when would the countess be a buffo character is it not a buffo opera i mean what do we it's not opera seria there's that that was my point is that she has to have that seriousness in this moment Sorry. Giovanna. <laughs> George looks at me like I'm an idiot. Booby. <laughs> well, I will say this. Um, Oliver, you win. Shut up. What? Really? <laughs> yep. Anya wins. Shut up. Wow. Here's why. I was surprised. You <laughs> predetermined that. You didn't even let my... Did you even listen to the words that I said? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm not because coming I... back next week. Okay. <laughs> Toby, I almost changed my mind in round three because okay. Anya <laughs> really messed up and it really was not in tune. But yeah. in round four, she made up for it. I don't know. It was more interesting. I was I was bored at every at every excerpt of Carol and really warm and fuzzy and had goosebumps at every ex. You're looking at me like you hate me. And I, I don't hate that. you. <laughs> well, let's just say that. Like, but I hate you. Car- Carol Vanis is in another role like Vitalia or Fiordaligi where she can show off her chest voice. Incredible. It's, it's something else. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But not here. Yeah. Not now. Sorry, Toby. What's what are the language restrictions that we can use on the podcast as opposed to live radio? <laughs> <laughs> well, let us know if you have some singers that you want to see go head to head. I think they've always been the same gender, right? I, I guess they wouldn't have to be. Couldn't you do like a counter tenor and a soprano? Yeah. Counter tenor versus alto, yeah. That's yeah, possible. exactly. Yeah. That might yeah. be interesting. What ideas do you guys have? Leave us a voicemail, 224 218 nine box it's two two four two one eight nine two six nine you can also listen to our live show of course next monday nine o'clock central wnur 89.3 fm evanston chicago you're so trans inclusive george i this whole show i have yeah. been yeah that's what i'm saying i'm i'm congratulating you that's a compliment yeah. okay mm-hmm. right on yeah. counter tenors are minorities too we're going inside the huddle right after this 
Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of play-by-play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and Giovanna Jacques. Well, we hyped him up at the beginning of the show, but Matthew Polanzani, I mean, what a catch. I didn't think this was going to happen. I'm, I lucked out. So here's the this, this story. I Probably Matthew's not going to be happy I'm saying this, but back in the when I was in college, I used to work at this place called the Verdi Puccini Opera Cafe. And Matthew is a Evanston resident, uh, and he maybe worked there too at some point in his life. And so our paths crossed very, very early on. Um, and so when I went to the D- see Deshaun Merlin, I reminded him uh, when I was, you know, in the waiting line to receive or to be received by him. Um, hey, remember we used to work at the Opera Cafe together? And he looked at me like I was crazy, because <laughs> you are. But, but but he's such. Then a you nice- held up a head of lettuce and a knife, <laughs> and he was like, "Yes, it was the prep line, wasn't it?" <laughs> so I, he was so gracious. He's such a nice guy, and he agreed uh, to be interviewed for the show. Um, and so I waited after he did a master class at Northwestern. I waited in his dressing room, and uh, yeah, and then he came after the master class, and we talked, and we had to do it so fast. And like, I'm so embarrassed because, like, you know me, I'm not a good interviewer. I like talk too much. I'm always oh, trying to show Oliver. how smart I am. It's embarrassing. And I let him talk as much as I could. But we are in the dressing room. So thank the, God the acoustic. <laughs> <laughs> the acoustic is really bouncy in there. Um, but he had some really great things to say. Advice for singers, what makes him a good colleague. Uh, some I talk a lot about the influences in his career and what I hear in his voice and where his career might be going. So it's a, I'm so happy to be able to do this. Thank you so much mm. for this. How did you get to this place where you feel like you can actually start thinking about gesture and about, you know, language to that tale and you know i don't know if you're even going back into the history of some of these shows and i'm sure you're listening to the previous singers or you're reading books about the composers i don't know but it feels like you're coming at it from so many angles and it's just mind-blowing well here's the thing you know yeah i do i do listen to old singers i do listen to recordings from from past performances things like that i'll read books especially if it's something historical like i did a lot of study for roberto Devereux because there was a lot of what we did was fiction but i mean all these people were, it was based on real people. But I mean, um, you know what it was? I'll tell you, you know, in order to be able to come at it from a lot of different directions, you have to master one particular direction at the top. You have to figure out your technique. Yeah. You have to figure that out. Without knowing your technique, your body is totally unfree to do anything else. So learning technique, and that's, that's a constant thing for me, but now I have a basis for it. And those four years of work that I did with Margaret Harshaw were huge. The work I continue to do with Laura Brooks Rice, they've all been huge. And I've been with Laura way longer than I was with Miss Harshaw. She's been my teacher since Miss Harshaw died. So um, we're talking like 17 years. So wait, let me think. 97? No, 19 years. 19 years. So I mean, um, <clears throat> I mean, she's been my teacher for a long time. And um, having a solid technique, having something to, that I knew I could depend on to make work freed me up. To be better at all the rest of it, you know, at, at 
at languages and at gesture and all those things and being natural. And frankly, you know, the more time you spend on stage in many ways, the easier it gets. You know, I mean, like if you're given a lot of recitals, then you start getting used to it. And then you start being able to think while you're, while you're, and that can get in your way too. I mean, there were a couple of times when things came in my head last night and I was like, man, I got to banish that thought right now. You know, like <laughs> you start thinking about other, like in this particular cycle, because it's 20 songs yeah. and you don't get a break. And you don't have time to check through the score once more and make sure you have it. Yeah. Either you've got it or you don't, you yeah. know. And, and I mean, I, 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 I dropped a verse in the 10th song, even as it was. You know, I mean, like, and even, th but, you know, like I said, and what I was saying before, you just have to be graceful. In the moment that you're in, you know you're doing the best you can do. And hopefully the best you can do is going to be exactly what they want. And if it's not, you know, and understanding you're not going to please everybody all the time, you can't. And that's one of the beautiful things about our career, that we can argue about who we like. Have you always been a person who like talks with your hands, or did you like look at yourself in a mirror and decide? Oh, no, no, I, I talk with my hands okay. for sure, absolutely. Because the timing of what you do as a singer works so well with, with, with all things I've ever seen you sing. Like it just seems like you were coached to like, okay, that's your hand lands there right at that note, you know? Oh no! We, like what we do when we talk, it's like, hey, call me, you know? Like it's supernatural. And right. Like, but you see singers get all trapped up and they like, oh, share sure. this up, and I don't know. What to well, do. but you know what? They're not. They're these guys aren't haven't learned how to live the text yet. Yeah. You know, they're getting there, and all of them have great voices. That's a that's the first thing to start off with. I mean, like you have to have that in order to you 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 have to have that to start, or else it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you figure all the rest of it out if you haven't got a good good working voice to start with. You know, but all those hand gestures and things like that, all that stuff comes from, from having a deeper understanding of the text, you know, and then your body starts to move, you know, like I, I've, I've tried to get singers in, in classes, you know, to like, like if you're telling it, like to try and tell a story and to be like in a bar with a group of friends and like exactly how would you move and when yeah. you, what would you do like to move in a toll, a way that's completely foreign to yeah. what we're doing on the stage. <clears throat> and you heard me say it already three or four times today, just now with these kids way easier to bring you back from from the edge of vulgarity than it is to push you into vulgarity itself you know so i mean like you have to risk being natural and free you know and yeah. uh, it's a hard thing to do yeah. and it takes a grasp it really it takes a good grasp of your technique and that's these guys are still learning working that stuff out there's definitely a stylist in you hmm. but then you do all these things that are so intellectual <laughs> and i feel like it's is he pretty i don't know but like where do you see yourself in this and you are like polenzani-ing you know, like, <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. That's a great thing. <laughs> no, no, but I was listening to like your Hoffman and your Roberto Devereaux, and I was like, how is the same singer singing these things? You know, and like, what do you are what are you doing in your preparation to say, okay, this is mine. How am I going to make this mine? Make it work, work with my technique, my voice. Okay, well, first of all, when you say like you don't know what kind of singer I am, the the reason you don't know is because my repertory is broad. Mm -hmm. It's always been broad, but I've never ventured into. Verismo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never ventured like I'm. I'm. I'm singing Bohem for the first time. I'm no, 47 really? years old. I'm going to do it, and like after I'm done here, I'm going home for a couple of weeks to work, and then I'm going to sing. You know, I mean, like I think it's. Gonna, I frankly think it's going to be easy for me because I I know a lot of it already, and I'm I'm I know I make enough noise to do it, and I think I'm smart enough. The thing that I that I miss about something like Bohem or even in, in like Alfredo or whoever. I mean, the opportunities to sing quiet aren't, aren't so many, there are not so mm -hmm. many opportunities. And like, I'd like to be able to make music like that. Yeah. So on the other hand, I, this music speaks to my soul and I've, I've, wa I've waited to do it, but I've been, I probably, I would have judged myself ready to do it even seven or eight years ago, but I've just waited because once you start on that road, you, it's hard to get off that road. My repertory is broad and I do a lot of different things and I do that. And I think that's healthy for my voice. I think it's healthy for my mind, you know, like. 
I know singers who have already sung like 200 performances of Don Giovanni and they're 10 years younger than me. And I'm just like, man, what, how, when, how, don't you want anything else for your life? I mean, yeah, yeah well, that's paying the bills. And I'm like, dude, there's way more to life than just paying the bills. And yes, bills had to get paid, but you can choose to do stuff that's fun and interesting and even things that are not so fun, but still interesting, you know? And um, so this is why, you know, this is how my... Um, how my repertory has grown, you know, and why something like Devereaux is just as possible for me as, you know, Nadir or even Don Giovanni, like I have next year. I have Don Giovanni, Idomeneo, and... Um, He's the Italian singer. <laughs> like, and the Italian yeah. singer in Rosen Cavalier. they yeah. show that thing of an HD. It's like, what? What is he doing? Did they that? say that? Well, yeah. it's, it just, I just saw Electra yesterday. And, oh, uh, yeah. right. And so they announced, like, the next season. And so your name comes up in Rosen Cavalier, and it's like, really, he has time mm. to do that? Like... <laughs> They're all right in the same... I mean, literally. Okay. Idomeneo starts in, like, mid-February or something like that. And the last performance of it is, say, March 30th. I don't know the exact days. Mm -hmm. I'm making up these dates. But yeah. it's like that. Rehearsal for um, Rosen Cavalier starts, like, March 12th or March 18th or something. So there'll be, like, 12 days. But it's only the Italian tenor. When he walks on, yeah, yeah, he yeah, sings... Yeah. <laughs> He takes a little break. He sings it again a half step higher, and then he leaves. You know what I mean? Like, so I mean, it's that's not cruel, so bad. Cruel, cruel role. It's a, but it's a great part, though. I mean, like, it's and it's a beautiful aria. People love it, even yeah. if they don't know who you are when you come up for your yeah. bow at the end. Yeah. Anyway, the last performances of Rosenkavalier will still be going on while Don Giovanni is even in performance. Mm -hmm. Like at one point before before they'd worked the schedule out, they had said it's looking like now we're going to have a Rosenkavalier in the afternoon and a Don Giovanni at night. Mm -hmm. Will that be okay? You know, I'm like, well, that will be okay. I, I wouldn't want to do it if it was the other way around, maybe. Yeah. But. And you were talking in this masterclass you just gave about like the difference between a French portamento and an Italian portamento, hmm. and there isn't, a, there aren't a lot of singers right now who sing in a French style. It's like a very international. Right. So I just, can you say a little bit about that, like where you got your idea about French repertoire, since you are a specialist, I find in this repertoire. Well, I mean, a lot of it came from when I was younger, but a lot of it comes from working with people like Pierre Vallet. Okay. Who is a he's a coach conductor he, he assistant conductor he was a coach at the Met now he's branching into conducting he's a lovely conductor actually and has a real great firm understanding of music and I, I go to him a lot especially for French things but also for other things I mean like the work I did with him has has been big but here and I talked about listening to French singers there's something about listening and I and I and I go back to like Teal you know and Benzo you know I mean like I listen to what they did and how they did it. I wasn't listening to how they sang. I was listening to how they said words. I listened to how they treat musical line as French people singing French. You know, and they just come at it differently than an Italian person would or than a German person or an English person or whatever, American. So, I mean, I, you know, like I don't, I didn't, I generally never studied anybody else's technique other than my own. But I took, I took great pains to start to understand why singers were doing things, the things they were doing. You know, and in those days... You know, they were making a lot of recordings, but generally, if you were going to make a recording, you were doing it because you were one of the greatest at what you were doing, yeah. you know, generally. And um, so I knew I could steal a lot of ideas from them just about how you treat language. And I got to say, you know what? I learned a lot from, uh, incredibly, especially when it comes to French, I learned a lot from a soprano named Ora, Nora Amsalem, okay. who I sang Romeo and Juliet with in like 98 or something like that. She was the first French singer that had sung something French with. And, man, I, I listened really closely to how she said her words. Okay. You know, just, like, the, understand the sound je, you know, and yeah. it's not je or je, but, I mean, yeah. like, the quality of that je or the quality in German, like, of, you know, like, uh, mich yeah. versus nacht, 
You know what I mean? Like they're really they're they're spelled the same way, but they're two different sounds. And when you listen to a German person say it, you can you totally hear the difference. So I try to make all those things my own. You know, I want to leave our audience with one of your anecdotes. You had like two really great ones that I'm able to choose. Like right, I'll try so. I'll try to give them both to you really quickly. <laughs> the first the first one talking about singing on Wacker Drive and being in the moment. You know what I was what I was trying to say to them was. You know, like standing on standing on the audition stage, looking at the people who I was auditioning for, and behind them was a window looking onto Wacker Drive. And as I was singing, I'm watching these people walking by, and I'm I'm seeing lives happening. Like I, and I mentioned, like I saw a woman who was crying, and I saw some people who were arguing, and I saw people laughing and chatting, and you know, like I, it just occurred to me, even while I was singing, that life was going on, <laughs> even despite this moment, which I built up in my brain as, oh, I got to get this audition. You know, like, man, I, if I gotta get, if I don't get a job, I don't know what I'm gonna do. And we're all, we've all been in that boat. We've all been there. Where, like, getting, getting work is not just important for like paying bills, but because you need to fulfill this dire need inside of you to create art. You know, to sing, or to act, or to dance, or whatever. So, um, you know, like, it, it occurred to me in that moment that, hey, you know what? This is just a moment in my life. It's not the last moment in my life. There's gonna be other moments that are gonna be just as big or bigger. And this audition, I'm going to sing as well as I can. If I don't sing very well, they might hire me. If I sing great, they might tell me to quit. I don't know what the, <clears throat> what the outcome of this, of this audition is going to be. But what I can say is I'm going to do everything I can to succeed in this moment. And it's going to have to be good enough because I can't do any better. I prepared myself and I'll take note of the things I do wrong and I'll try and be better for them the next time. You know, yeah. I mean, and like yeah. this is just a moment in life. And it's no bigger or smaller than it than it would be if it was the Met stage or some little stage, you know, like I said in Wyoming or wherever. I mean, like or some you, guy's house, and we'll leave you alone. Yeah, <laughs> oh no, but you know what I mean. Yeah. It's really one of these things where you. you know, I always want to sing my best. I know I'm going to go out, and I'm not going to say to myself, "Well, this is going to suck." All right, here we go. I'm going to do this, and they're going to tell me to quit. Nobody goes out with that attitude. Everybody goes out wanting to do something great. And so I always try to think of myself as like, all right, I have to picture myself succeeding and going out and just enjoying the moment, knowing that I've got a gift and I got to use it. So the other one we were talking about was Philip Language. The thing of the thing about Philip was, you know, like he was talking specifically about, like I hear from your co- like I hear from colleagues and people who have had firsthand experiences with you, working with you, and how you know, like you're just such a gracious guy or whatever. And you know, I got a great example from Philip when 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 I was when I was younger and it was when my wife had left to go to Sarasota. We weren't going to see each other for five weeks or six weeks or however long it was going to be. And I was kind of depressed, you know, and I walked into rehearsal and Philip was a guy who I'd, I'd barely met. I'd, I'd, maybe I'd met him like the day before and like, hi, I'm Matthew Ponzani. I'm the, I'm the youth, you know, like nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. And we knew each Moses other. And like, Aaron, that's right. Moses <laughs> and Aaron. And he was an unbelievable Aaron. And um, so anyway, he, uh, so I saw him the next day and, uh, and he, and he saw me and he came over immediately and he said, Matthew, what's wrong? You know, and I said, oh, nothing. You know, he said, no, I can see, you know. And I said, well, my wife left today. I'm not going to see her for five weeks. And he just took me into his arms and he gave me this huge hug. And he said, I know how that is. Don't worry. This time is going to go by. And before you know it, you're going to be together again. And he treated me in such a loving. And I knew he'd been married to a mezzo named Ann Murray for all those years. And um, and my, like I knew that he understood, you know, and and, and just his willingness to be open and loving and earnest and real with me, even though he was Philip Language's guy who had admired his artistry for all those years. And I under, I'd seen him sing Veer. I'd seen him sing Mima. I'd seen him sing um, another big one. You know, I mean, like I'd seen him do things. And I knew he was great at what he did, you know. And for him to just 
you know, take a second out of his day to, to give me a hug and tell me everything was going to be okay. Oh man, that, that spoke, a, that, that was a massive thing to me. And after he passed, I mean, um, mm. well, I remember, I remember very well um, singing, I was singing a recital in Wigmore Hall not long after. And I was doing a piece that I associated completely with him, which was Britain's Michelangelo sonnets. And I had a very strong visceral memory even of him doing it. And uh, I just remember talking to, I needed to say something to the audience before I sang it, you know, just uh, to, to mention it because he'd made such a huge impact on me as a man and as a colleague and as an artist. And um, I'm grateful for his presence in my life. Uh, well, that's a great note to end on. Matthew Ponzani, it's ridiculous that you did this. Thank you so much. I'm glad I could You're do it, Oliver. It's close. great to see you again. <laughs> Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. All right, time to wrap this show up. Good call, bad call, Giovanna Jacques. What is on your mind? My good call is that Haymarket Opera will be opening um, Francesco Cavalli's La Calisto this weekend. Their first performance is Friday, May 6th at 7.30 p.m. Their second is Sunday, May 8th at 2 p.m. You can get tickets on www.haymarketopera.org. I got to sit in on some of the rehearsals, or briefly, and they sound incredible. Tobias right. My good call is that Matthew Polizzani was on our show yes! today, so thank you so much for that. Yes! So if you're listening to this and you or your friends happen to be really famous, internationally well-known opera singers, give us a call. We'd love to have you we on the, the show, too. High, but, you know, Anna Tropico is going to agree to do it, then she'll back up. Like, no. That's okay, as long as I get to talk to her. Oliver Camacho. Um... Electra runs through May 7th at the Met, and I did see the HD performance. And I have to say, Waltrud Meyer as um, Kutamestra was a show stealer. I mean, she came out looking like Claire Underwood and Julie Andrews somehow, and she was so mm. fierce. It was amazing. And then also, I have to give uh, props to Eric Owens. I mean, this is an opera where it's just loud singing all the time. The orchestra is the largest orchestra you can fit in the Met. And he comes out and he sings Bel Canto. And I mean, it's it's probably the easiest role to sing in what terms a beautiful of beautiful voice. Yeah, but I mean, everybody is shouting so much in that show, and then he comes out and he says, "He's just Eric Owens, and it's just gorgeous and creamy and chocolatey." I got to see Valtraud Meyer do her final performance of Kundry in Parsifal at the Staatsoper in Berlin, and it was incredible. What a elegant and regal woman! <laughs> Wait, where were you? That's it for our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. For WNUR, our programming director is Ville Cholnay, and the general manager is Maddie Higgins. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. You can follow us online on Twitter and on Facebook by searching for Opera Box Score. Be sure to like our Facebook page, and if you know people who would enjoy our show, help us spread the word by sharing our posts. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And hey, don't just listen to the podcast. Be a grown-up and leave a comment or a review. We're live in studio Monday, May 9 on WNUR 89.3 FM Chicago and streaming live on WNUR.org slash pop-up. Don't miss our Chalk Talk segment, our hot takes on the rest of the week's headlines from Opera Land, our pop quiz, and Oliver's attempts to make us lose our FCC license with his double entendres. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera right now in the merry, merry month of May. Giovanna, what's in the opera crystal ball this week? My opera crystal ball 
for Crystal Ball is that uh, Chicago Fringe Opera is opening in the Penal Colony, which is going to be performing at Lil Street Art Center, which is right by Margie's Ice Cream, and I have a feeling I'm going to eat way too much ice cream in the next few weeks. So. 